Well, welcome everyone uh, to this session of catechesis, the first of the new year. Uh, you know, Advent, the first Sunday of Advent is, the, is New Year's Day in the church calendar, which is a bad way to put it, but a um, uh, couple notes on that, by the way. Uh, one of the things that, that people have asked about is like, how do we follow along with the service? Well, you know, it's actually very simple. You start on page 105 and you finish up on page 121. Uh, it, we at Christchurch, we just follow the service straight through. It's the, it's the Anglican Standard Rite. It begins on page 105, ends on page 121. Uh, the prayers are right there. Everything's right there, which, I should note, is a major step up from the prayer book of my childhood, which was just like all over the place. And you had to know which page to turn to and how to get to all those places. This is just very straightforward. So if you're wondering, just kind of like turn to page 105. That's where it starts and it ends up. Now, there will be some redirections throughout, kind of turning you to various seasonal things. But, but on the whole, very straightforward. Um, what happens on the first Sunday of Advent is we start up a whole new lectionary year uh, and that is for the Sunday readings, and so that's often confusing to people. Um, we have a three-year lectionary that is uh, by a year A, B, and C, and so uh, if you look in the lectionary section for the Sunday Eucharistic lectionary, uh, we're beginning year C. It's in the third column, um, and, uh, and it has its own readings for year C. Uh, so you can keep track of it that way. Um, Starting with the first Sunday of Advent, going through to the fourth Sunday of Advent, then to Christmas, then to, like, all those things are included. Uh, and the daily office lectionary in this, in this prayer book is actually based on the secular calendar, which uh, is actually, I was a bit of a, of a uh, holdout on that. And uh, Father Canary, who's one of the, one of the architects of this, uh, of this uh, daily office lectionary, but just kept saying, oh, just stick with it. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. It's going to be great. And I said, okay. But why must we pray as the pagans do? It's kind of like how I was constantly putting it. And because I'm like, can't we have a Christian calendar? And, uh, well, it turns out I had to eat humble pie because he's absolutely right. Like, the daily office works much better if you just follow the, follow the um, regular calendar. It's easier to keep track of. Um, and the readings are much easier to find, and you get more, much more reading in course of the Scriptures, which is the original idea, right, um, is that you want to be reading as much Scripture as possible. Now, the reason I say all this is because uh, people often wonder, like, when's a good time to start praying the daily office? Well, today is the day. Like, now is the acceptable time. Um, so, I just say, start it up. Um, you know, it's a wonderful opportunity in Advent to get started in the daily office, even if all you do is morning prayer or evening prayer or something like that, great start. Um, uh, I, I venture to guess that a lot of people, it's really hard to do both. Um, but you can start with one. And even if it's just like, hey, I'm reading the readings and that's a lot for me. Well, good. Keep adding to it. Um, but you'll find it really helpful. Uh, and I think for, for a lot of reasons. One is that in, um, in December, uh, we read Isaiah. And so you're reading Isaiah in course through Advent, which is great, um, and, uh, and all those things just sort of line up. And so, uh, you know, again, I, I think very highly of the, of, the, uh, of the prayer book lectionary that we have now for the daily office. Um, the other thing that I dearly love about it is that you get a lot more Scripture. Um, in the past, you would have various things cut out. You wouldn't read in course truly. You would read a little bit from this chapter and a little bit from the next chapter, um, all for the sake of time. You know, we have to finish out so fast. And it's like, well, you know, I think what was lost is that um, in the daily office, the whole idea is to read as much Scripture as you can, read chapter by chapter. And so that's what's been restored. Um, and I think, you know, that's a fairly reasonable thing to, to think about. Uh, I can, I will never forget, you know, the first time this sort of dawned on me was sitting in the Guttiger's house for morning prayer one day, and I was sitting there thinking, like, I've, I haven't heard this in a long time. And the reason was, it wasn't in the, uh, in the daily office lectionary that I grew up with. So, it was just a really great boost, and you think, like, oh my, now we can read Scripture, right? Um, so, I really, you know, and, and look, you may be in the point where you say, I want to do the Bible in a year that I picked up at Barnes & Noble. Fine. Like, <laughs> fine. Don't do that. But I think one of the things you'll enjoy is that uh, Scripture readings in the daily office are orchestrated. There's a scheme involved. And, and, you know, that might sound very manipulative, but I, I would actually choose to see it the other way, which is that um, 
reading the scriptures in core, starting with Genesis and going all the way to Revelation, never works, really. I mean, I've known people who've been able to do it, um, but it's a painful exercise, right? Because you get confused, right? And you get kind of like, well, oh, I've been reading Leviticus for 30 days now, and when is this going to end? And I've not been reading the gospel at all, right? I've not been reading the New Testament at all. And I would just say uh, that the part of the genius of, of the uh, Anglican lectionary is that that's exactly what you do. You read, you read a little bit from here and a little bit from here. And so it offers you, I think this is really important, there's a, there's a kind of principle here, which is that you should not read the Old Testament without reading the New Testament. That actually, that's bad for you, is the idea. And I think that's, I will just say emphatically, I think that's right. Um, to read the Old Testament without reading the Gospel, without reading the New Testament, is, without reading the New Testament epistles, is just, actually, it leads you to Marcionism, is what it leads you to, which is that kind of little heresy where you say, surely God altered everything right after Zechariah and, and right before the Gospels, and everything changed, right? Um, you know, God has a, God has a kind of a coming-of-age moment or something like that. It's like, no. Uh, the, the reality of it is that, uh, that Scripture is to be read together as a coherent whole, and, uh, and in fact, that's where you get the best reading of Scripture, is when you're constantly reading back and forth. Um, and so, uh, I just want to encourage you in that and say, you know, go for it. This is the moment, uh, and uh, it's a great, great opportunity to start that up. Okay, we are back to the catechism. Uh, and um, we are going to start right here. Um, we are actually, at, I believe we're on the resurrection of the body, is that right? Yep, yep. okay. Question 114. What does Holy Scripture tell you about your body? Holy Scripture tells me that my body, though tainted by sin, was created good, bearing the image of God and endowed with great dignity. Therefore, from the moment of conception to natural death, every human body and every human life should be cared for, protected, and loved. I love this answer. It's, it's a two-part answer, and the first part has to do with how our bodies were created. Um, and of course, it's perfectly in line with Genesis 1 and Genesis 2, uh, being made in the image of God. And, and I think this is often misunderstood. It's to say, does God look like us? No, God is not like you. <laughs> However, um, we are made to be like God, um, and that's what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, I'll, I'll never forget that uh, Jim Packer, who was the general editor of the Catechism, um, would say that to be made in the image of God means that you are made to be like Jesus. Um, I repeat that often because I think that's probably the best answer to what that means, right? Um, consider for a moment uh, what the Genesis story actually tells us which is that uh, Adam is made from the earth, right? That's what his name means, he's made from the earth. And uh, his wife is, is taken from his side, from a rib. And uh, part, of the, part of the, I think, the, the biblical story is that Adam can't really know himself as long as he's the only one of his kind in creation, can he? He knows himself only in relation to the animals that surround him, the trees, etc., he knows himself as, as a being in creation, but he doesn't know who he is. Um, that's a totally different question. Um, it is in meeting his wife that he knows himself. Why? Because he beholds her. What does he say? He says, this at last is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. Um, it's in beholding another human body that's different from his and yet like his um, that he not only gains knowledge of himself, but he gains knowledge of God um, by beholding the image of God in another. Um, so this is, this is a very key understanding here, and I think it's one of the things that we have to really, um, uh, as we have to wrestle with it um, to really get it. But bearing the image of God and endowed with great dignity. Um, human dignity derives from being made in the image of God. Um, uh, and uh, I remember several years ago there was a huge debate about this question of the dignity of human life and how that's sort of a loaded term, you know. You don't, don't want to like poison anyone's mind against certain uh, practices by saying that human life has dignity. And what, is, what, after all, does dignity mean? Well, it means that it's glorious. It means that it's good. It means that it's holy. It means that um, you can't violate it uh, at will. And so that second sentence is actually just boilerplate 
uh, pro-life language from conception to natural death. Um, every human body and every human life should be cared for, protected, and loved. And, and I will just tell you, I think this is basic Christian teaching. I, I don't think there's anything like completely uh, uh, out of the blue about this. I think this is basic. Um, and, and to put it really clearly, um, this is to say that, that uh, an embryo is a human life. It's also to say that, um, that um, uh, someone who uh, is on life support but um, has not yet died um, is also a human life and worthy of protection. Um, it's to say that uh, a child with mental disabilities is a human life. Um, so all of that is just to say that, uh, that, that human life is sacred and should be cared for, protected, and loved. Um, okay, and we'll say a lot more about that in the, uh, in the Ten Commandments section. Why will you die? Because sin and death now corrupt this world, my body will degenerate and die. But by the will of God, my soul will be with the Lord, and I will rise bodily from death when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. Um, this is to say that for Christians, death is no final thing, actually. Um, now, you might remember that the four final things, do you remember this in you know, some kind of catechesis thing? The four last things are death, judgment, heaven, and hell, right? Um, but, but remember that death is not final, final. It is one of the final things, but leads to more. Um, and uh, the prayer book shows this forth. Um, I, I love this. There's a, there's a hymn that's sung, well, hopefully sung. Um, uh, and it, or it's actually the, um, the uh, preface in, in, the, in the Eucharist is um, that, that in death, life is changed, not ended. Um, and I think for a lot of people, a lot of Christians too, they think of death as an end. Well, death is not the end. <laughs> uh, we believe in the resurrection. We believe in the resurrection of the body. Um, and so uh, this is not an end. Though my body will be corrupted and I will die, my body will degenerate and die. And of course, you say, well, my body's already degenerating. It's like, yes, yes, of course it is. <laughs> um, but uh, the, the important thing is to say that death is not... Uh, a, is not um, is not, is not the end, uh, that um, we, we await something. So Christians have spoken of death as simply this, in a lot of ways, the separation of soul and body, which is unnatural, actually, um, when you really consider it. Like, um, think about Adam in the garden. He's made, right, out of the dust, and how does he become a living being? God breathes into him, and it says, and Adam became a living being. Um, he has more life to him than just kind of like uh, biological life. He has, he has life, um, as C.S. Lewis would put it, zoe. He has, he has more than just bios. He has, he has zoe. Um, but this is, this is what, what is said, is that I will rise bodily from death when Jesus Christ returns to judge the living and the dead. This is a key Advent theme, is this return of Jesus uh, to judge the living and the dead, um, to... Uh, to judge after the resurrection of the dead, um, to be judged in the body. So this is another wild part is that, you know, Christians do not believe that you're judged in soul only, judged in the body. So I think this is a really key point. I mean, I, I used to work with youth a lot, and um, one of the things that, that I became very aware of is that, um, you know, most youth and now, you know, everybody's 15 years older, so everybody's like almost middle-aged at this point. It's like... Uh, just don't have a conception of the body being sacred or real even. Um, it's this kind of like, well, uh, the, my favorite term for this is it's just sort of my meat suit and, uh, and I sort of wear it and, and uh, I can do whatever I want with it, which is a Gnostic belief really when you get down to it. Um, and I think that uh, one of the things that we Christians have to really uh, speak to is how the, the body is not only real but sacred and, um, and what you do in it matters. Um, and not only because you'll be judged in the body, um, but because uh, you're judged for what happened to your body um, and what you did in the body. Um, so that's, that's, a, that's a, a lovely thing to be reminded of. I think it's a good, important thing to be reminded of. Um, you know, modern Gnosticism in this way has led to this complete collapse of understanding our bodies as pointing at all to our identity. Um, you know, really what's happening in the transgender ideology 
issue is that there is a wholesale rejection of bodily identity. Um, you know, our identity is much more esoteric, right, is the idea. And, and look, that's a Gnostic idea, <laughs> that who we are is just an esoteric idea. No, I mean, you can't know it from the body. It's like Christians need to say, that is absolutely wrong. Um, the body actually shows us who we are, um, and we should say as much. So I want to kind of bring that one out. What is the resurrection of the body? When the risen Lord Jesus returns to judge the earth, he will raise all dead to bodily life. The wicked will then receive eternal condemnation and the righteous eternal life in the glory of God. So the general resurrection, this teaching on the general resurrection is that what happened to Jesus will happen to all human beings, except for those already alive. I don't, I don't quite get what happens to them, but I'm sure that their bodies are transformed <laughs> at that moment. Um, I'm reminded that St. Augustine actually says that, uh, that, the, that the age of the risen body of, uh, of the human being will be 33 years old, which to me sounds like, no thank you, I'd rather be 22 or 21. Um, but the, uh, the reason for that is that uh, for him to be, to be risen after the likeness of Christ means that you'll rise as Christ was at 33 years old, right? It's this just basic, basic idea that you know, you'll, you'll just rise as he was. Um, and I think that is really the key, actually, is that for the Christian, the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is a general principle, right? It's to say that um, what happened to Jesus will happen ultimately to all human beings. Um, well, why? Because he is the man, right? Um, and all, and, and in fact, to be made in the image of God means to be made in the image of the incarnate Jesus, actually, at the end of the day. Um, this, this kind of, we've talked about this in the past, this, this, this transitive principle where you speak about Jesus Christ as being God, right? So who is Jesus? Well, he's God, right? I mean, he's more than that. He's son of man and son of God. Um, he is both, both God and man. Um, and what we can say about that is, is that, um, that, that he is humanity in its essence, right? Um, all of us are actually made in the divine image according to Jesus Christ, actually. Um, and you might say, but he wasn't, he wasn't human yet in the, in the, in, when human beings were made. It's like, oh, but you, you forget that actually for human life to be taken up into God means that, um, that there's a sort of timeless quality to the incarnation. Um, from us, it looks like a timeline, but to God, it's all one. Um, and I think that's really an important thing to be reminded of, um, is that, uh, you know, well, the incarnation is, is anticipated constantly. Why? Because it's, it is the reality. Um, so, just a thought there. Um, there's a wonderful statement here about judgment. The wicked will then receive eternal condemnation and the righteous eternal life in the glory of God. I think people would nitpick at that and say, the wicked, meaning what? Like those who have done wrong and those who've done right. Uh, and, and I think in a basic sense, yes. Right? Like, <laughs> scripture uses this language not to talk about um, kind of, uh, not to shed doubt on how justification actually works, but to say that, um, that this is actually how it is, right? That, um, that the wicked are those who have no cover. Um, the righteous are those who have cover uh, by, by Jesus Christ, who are, um, who are remade after the likeness of their Savior. Um, so I think that's really important. What do, we, what do you know about the resurrected bodies of believers? They will be fully renewed and glorified in the image of Christ, perfected after the manner of his own resurrected and ascended body. Um, so th there's something here about human life being off the mark um, sufficiently because of death and sin, yes, and actually sin and death, that are, we are not perfect. We're, we're off the mark. We are, um, we are um, well, inglorious <laughs> would be a way to put it. Uh, I love what Pascal, Blaise Pascal once, once wrote one of the most beautiful things that's ever been written about human life. Um, he, he says, you know, um, what, what a monster is man, you know? And he, he says, we're, we're the, the glory and garbage of the universe. And it's like, that's exactly right. Um, that's exactly right. Um, so what has to happen? Well, it has to be, you know, garbage gone, glory entirely, 
right? So what are we made for? Well, we're made for glory. That's what it means to be made in the image of God. Um, when, when Jesus Christ ascends in his body into glory, that is a prefiguring of what our destiny is. Um, so this is what is said, that, um, that our bodies will be perfected, fully renewed and glorified. Um, and of course, we have to look at the risen body of Jesus to see what that will be like. Um, you know, can he eat? Yes. Uh, is he bound up in time and space? No. Uh, can he, uh, you know, uh, is he all the more bodily? Yes. Um, and the place where some, uh, some critics have gone is they've said, well, you know, he, he, can, uh, he can disappear and reappear. He's obviously not bodily. And, uh, and I think the response that Christians should have is, well, that's what a body is. <laughs> uh, but, you know, that's what a perfected body looks like. That's what it can do. Um, and we should just say our bodies are imperfect, actually. What, what limits them is not, is, not, um, is not what God intends. So our bodies are transformed. They're renewed. They're, uh, they're uh, one of the great biblical words that I love is anachinosis. They're, they are uh, renewed unto a higher state, um, which, is, which is a much better way to put it, right? Um, so, very important. How should you live as you await the resurrection of your body? Because I put my hope in God's resurrection of my body, I should honor and care for it. I should refrain from any violence, disrespect, or sin that would harm, demean, or violate either my body or the bodies of others. Um, this is simply to say, uh, I put my hope in God's resurrection of my body. And uh, Paul's uh, admonition is to honor and care for the body. Um, and, and he uses this in, in Ephesians chapter 5, particularly talking about um, how a man cares for his body, and for this reason he should care for the body of his wife as well, um, as, as an extension of himself, in a sense. Um, Paul speaks of the body as the temple of the Holy Spirit, um, and, uh, and, you know, uh, look, if you showed up here on a Sunday morning and there was dirt in the carpet, um, you'd be incensed, or at least I would be. I don't know about you, but, but I, you know, it's, there's a kind of problem there, and you know, somebody better clean this up, right, because there's a desecration of sorts that went on. And, uh, and, um, and because we do have an idea of the holy, we, we certainly have a, a very keen idea of this. Um, but when it comes to our own bodies, we sort of say, well, but, you know, we could do this or we could do that, and, like, does it really matter, and isn't it just like a meat suit, and can't we do what we want with it? And so there's this double thinking involved. Um, I, I will just tell you, and I, you know, I'm not going to make a moral pronouncement on this. I'm far from, in fact. Um, but I'm sort of horrified by tattoo culture um, because I think it, it's confused. It says two things at the same time. A, my body is an extension of myself and my identity, et cetera, but I can sort of mold it however I want. Now, I'm not mad at you for getting a tattoo, and I don't think anybody could be, but, but it's just to say, I think there's an ideology which underlines this explosion of tattoo culture, right, uh, that, that there should be some concern about. Um, I think that uh, other things going on, especially in the tra transgender world that's very strange is, uh, you know, this idea that I should um, have the right to uh, alter my body to suit this esoteric understanding of myself. And, and I'm left asking, well, which is it? That your body is meaningful or that it's not? And there's a sort of doublespeak there, too. Um, but, but I think that um, bodily mutilation is sinful. I'll just say that straight up. Uh, to mutilate the body is sinful. Paul says that, right? Paul says, beware of those who mutilate the body. Um, and I don't think he's just talking about those who, who uh, practice circumcision. And you might say, well, what about circumcision? I'd say, well, circumcision is not meant to be a final thing, is it? It's very clearly not meant to be that. Um, but, but simply to say, look, that I think... Uh, ways in which the human body is altered to fit a certain narrative or a certain um, idea of ourselves um, is, is disordered. Um, and, uh, and we do well to uh, keep our bodies uh, in that sense. So I want to just say that. Um, not only of ourselves, but of others. And so this is really key. I think, you know, um, Christians have very little tolerance, actually, for... Um, for forced mutilation of the body, 
Um, and in fact, uh, there, have been, there have been sort of grand debates in the church about things like, you know, at, at one point it was popular for uh, men to avoid ordination by clipping their ears or, you know, cutting off fingers and doing things like this. And, and the church rejected that idea, just rejected it because it's like, hey, you know, you, you can't do that. The, the body's sacred. The body's holy. Um, and and um, also, you shouldn't be avoiding these things, you know. It's kind of like, don't, don't be doing that. Um, so there's a lot to be said. There's a lot to be said there, uh, and and not only that, but um, but you know there have been many uh, instances of of uh, people who have uh, basically defaced themselves, um, and uh, and I can remember um, years ago in 2008, you know, meeting Nigerian bishops. It was very common to meet a Nigerian bishop who had uh, um, uh, scars cut into his face that uh, were like cat whiskers. It's a very uh, animistic kind of religious symbol, um, cutting cat whiskers. You, you're, you're, you're the man, and you're, you're, it's, it's this idea of like, hey, you are uh, very powerful, um, but you're not a lion, but what if you were? And like, <laughs> so it's this kind of like idea of like, you know, we're going to conquer that. Um, it's been very interesting now to, you know, 10 years out, see that that's virtually unseen now, um, because as uh, society has, has uh, embraced the gospel in places like Nigeria, um, those, things, those practices have come to an end. Um, well, why? Christians are those who do not alter their bodies. Um, so I think that's a, that's a really big thing. I actually, I'll just come, go right on a limb and I'd say, you know, it would be a massive success for the church if we were known as those who just don't mutilate our bodies you know, 20, 30 years from now, we just don't do it. Um, and, and we start to reject things like tattoos. I mean, I think that would be a win because um, we would we'd be saying something about the sacredness of human life. Go ahead. Yeah, I mean, all those things are, are sort of frustratingly uh, difficult, right? And, and um, you know, certain cosmetic things, uh, those are toughies, right? Yeah. Yeah. Sure. Yeah. I think there's something to be, I mean, you know, I, I, yeah. I think there's a way in which, you know, uh, it's definitely clear that there are medical benefits to orthodontia that go way beyond the aesthetic, right? Um, I have fake teeth. All my front six teeth are fake, and you know I'm not. I'm, I I I probably you know if I was a better Christian I would just say you know I should probably just live with that right that, that I have that I that I don't have that I'm missing teeth or whatever it is, um, uh, and and there may be value in that I I don't know but but I think I'm just raising these as a sort of challenge to say like we should think about these things these things are really important to just sort of dwell on and consider, um, yeah. I'm thinking more of, of just kind of things that are almost dreadfully commonplace uh, today that we just don't really think about. Um, so just a thought. I mean, I think, I think there's always medical reason, right? I mean, I think medical reason says, for instance, a great example is, you know, an amputation is not, um, is not a desecration of the body. Why? Because the intent is different. The intent is to save the life, not to not to defile it. Um, so just, and, it, and it's actually to uphold the dignity of life. Um, so that would be one way to, to think about it. All right. What do you know about the unending resurrected life of believers? I know that it will be an eternal life of joyful fellowship with our triune God, together with all his saints and angels, singing his praises and serving him in the renewed creation. So this is wonderful, you know, is that um, God actually intends our bodies to be before him, uh, singing his praises. Um, I don't think it should escape us on a regular basis that, that part of the, one of the weirdest ideas in, in Christian teaching is that with the eyes with which I see you now, I will see God. Um, what a thing. Like, that's, that's wacky, right? Now, will they, will they be different, changed? Sure. But are they the same in, by nature? Yes. Um, so I think that's, a, that's just a wonderful thing. And, it, and, it, 
And it also should be a challenge to us about what we see, right? That with the eyes that I, with which I see God, I will see that I see all manner of things. Um, so there's a, seeing is holy. Um, hearing is holy. Our senses are um, very holy. Um, so what we put before our eyes or what we put before our ears, you know, really matters. Um, it's a really important thing. Um, how should you live in light of this promise of unending, unending life? I should live in joyful expectation of the fullness of my transformation, soul and body, into the likeness of Christ. In the midst of suffering or in the face of hostility and persecution, I am sustained by the hope of a new heaven and earth, freed from Satan, evil, suffering, and death. Um, in truth, the resurrection of the body has been the compelling uh, understanding which is under um, which is underlaid uh, uh, Christian martyrdom. Actually, um, it's this understanding of well, you kill my body, and what will God do with it? <laughs> he will raise it up. <laughs> so do what you will, right? <laughs> it's this kind of idea of you know, oh well, uh, and uh, that's a certainly a hard thing to embrace, but. But uh, I think that um, we, we actually have a project in front of us, and the project is to reawaken ourselves to the reality of our bodies, especially in death, um, which raises something that I, I think, you know, I love to talk about during this, during this period in the catechism. But it's, it's just the way that we deal with remains, right? Um, we're far too, uh, I, I will say, I have no problem morally with cremation, what I do have a problem with is the liturgical catechesis of uh, cremation, that it sort of instructs us in a way of thinking about the body as sort of disposable or something which can be burned down or we can sort of aid natural processes by doing it faster or, you know, whatever that might be. And I recognize it's, it's incredibly affordable to, to, uh, to take on cremation. Um, but there's some value in keeping the body whole. Um, and I think that um, one of the things that I've personally decided is that that's what's going to happen for me. Um, in fact, during Lent, I have a woodworking project that I'm going to take on. I'm actually going to build myself a coffin um, that will also be a bookcase. And, <laughs> and the reason that I'm going to do this is because I want to look at the thing in which I will be buried ultimately, and I want to look at it daily and be reminded that someday my body will be in that box, and I'm just going to have to deal with that. Um, but it's a very comforting thought to me because it just says, hey, like, this is your future. Whatever it is, this is it. And it's only par part of the future, of course. Um, but I just want to challenge you and say, you know, I think that there are ways in which Christians can think much more deeply about uh, the reality of the body, especially in death, and, um, and ways in which there's a great uh, witness to Christian teaching on the resurrection of the body that's laid clear by such things as full body burials. Um, even by such things as open caskets and, uh, and all those things. I think that um, this, is, this is Christian practice, um, and, it, and it has a very uh, Christian origin. Um, now, again, I'm not, I, I don't have any authority to speak against cremation. That's not the point. The point is, I think that um, what we do liturgically actually trains us in a certain way of living, in a certain way of thinking about ourselves. Um, and I have to wonder if, if cremation tells a story that's opposite to the Christian story, um, or that maybe doesn't take the body seriously enough um, to, to be sufficient in, what, in what's being said. So that's just a thought. In fact, I can, I can just tell you, in California, I very rarely had a body at the funeral. In fact, I very rarely had uh, cremated remains um, because the state was always doing autopsies, especially on older people, to try to figure out, like, what happened? You know, did anything, was there foul play involved here? And it's just like, come on. Like, I know, why is it that you care so little about, you know, certain forms of human life and, and seem to care so much about these? And it's just very confusing. But um, I think I just want to say, um, you know, it's something to consider, especially as we uh, get nearer and nearer to Lent, um, one of the things you should be doing regularly is planning out what happens to you. Uh, 
Um, you know, plan your funeral. Um, we actually have, Christchurch, we have a funeral planning form that you can get, which you can fill out, which you can put on file. And that way, uh, if you have kids that are difficult, um, they won't have to fight over the details of, you know, the, the funeral, which is a great gift, right? I mean, they can just have, you know, sort of have a wake and, you know, you can do whatever they want. <laughs> I won't have to worry about it. <laughs> so, uh, I'll just say, well, this is what she said she wanted, so that's what we're doing. Um, and, you know, you, you all can show up if you'd like. Um, that's, that's that. Um, okay, should we move on to the sacraments? Okay, now, I like the placement of this, I'll just tell you, because it's, it's very important that we place the sacraments after uh, this discussion of the resurrection of the body. Um, and I will say this for, for two reasons. One is that, um, especially when it comes to baptism and the, and the Eucharist, we are speaking of um, realities that are bodily, um, that have to do with the body. Um, and so it makes sense to stick them here, uh, especially because of the relation of baptism to the resurrection of the body um, and, and so forth. But I think it's the right place. Now, there's a history to this, and I feel the need to kind of tell you that history. In the early catechisms of Anglicanism, 1549, 1552, 1559, there was no section on the sacraments in the catechisms. The section on the, on the sacraments was added to the Catechism of 1662, because at that point, the nasty Puritans had been defeated, and, uh, and it was sort of time to say, okay, well, now we're going to give you the right teaching on sacraments. Um, and that was how it went. This is part of uh, kind of, I don't know, Anglicanism triumphant is what I'd say. Uh, and so, uh, so the, the decision was made, put a, ca- put a catechism section in there about sacraments so we don't have to relive this bloody civil war again um, over those questions. Um, and, uh, you know, of course, the victors write the history, but they also write the theology, too, and so, uh, so there's something really important about this. Um, and for some, this language of sacrament is new, and I want to be aware of that, um, but, but I think, you know, it's, it's a good, good opportunity to delve into it. What is a sacrament? A sacrament is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. So this is uh, Augustine's definition of a sacrament, actually, is this, uh, it is an outward and visible sign of an inward and spiritual grace. So uh, every sacrament has two parts, the outward and visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace. Um, And uh, that actually says something about what a sacrament is, right? Um, It's not just a visible thing, and it's not just an invisible thing, but has both parts, the visible and the invisible. Um, which, you know, look, if, you, if you've been around here much, you start to get that we, we like to talk about things visible and invisible. Um, we like to talk about how uh, not all things that exist can be seen. Um, and, uh, and, you know, that, that should be a fairly obvious thing for Christians to believe because we believe in the incarnation, we believe in, in the invisible God, right? Um, and yet, uh, it's not so obvious these days, and, uh, and I'm told that at certain places in California there are Christian materialists around, and uh, I have no idea what to make of that. Uh, but, but here we are, and, and um, it, it, it should not surprise us that at, at the heart of the church's practice are these two, th- are two things that say both with the outward and visible sign and the inward and spiritual grace, so both parts. Um, But Anglicans take it a step further, which is this, that God gives us the sign as a means by which we receive that grace and as a tangible assurance that we do, in fact, receive it. So this is taking it a bit of a step beyond. So um, it is to say that uh, that, uh, what the articles say is that uh, the sacraments are effectual signs of grace, that, in fact, uh, they don't just sort of image forth grace, they actually affect it. Um, they, they, they bring it, they give it to you. Um, now, that has, there's a lot to unpack there, I'll say that. Um, part, of, part of the way that modern people think is that we've reduced symbols to mere symbols, right? So like, a plus sign means addition, right? That's all it means. But I actually think there's a great deal more to be said about semiotics than simply, like, the obvious. Um, I think we actually don't do that, do we? So a great example is I'm driving down the highway, I-35, late at night. I look up into the sky, and I see a giant illuminated shell. 
And what do I think? Do I think, oh, there's a shell store. I'm going to go buy some seashells. No, I think, oh, good, I could use it. I could use it to top off, you know. (laughs) Gas, I think gas. Why do I think gas and shells? Because I've been trained through a long experience to understand that if I stop off at at this exit, I'll have gas and maybe a bathroom, right, that's more or less clean, potentially, right? Um, So all of that is at play. Um, and that's, that's a much better understanding of signs than what we usually have, which is that it should be obvious what a sign means. But I think it's much more than that, um, which is to say that uh, in the language of sacraments, that sign word um, actually speaks to the language of participation, that a sign actually participates in the reality that it shows forth. Um, so that's an important thing to kind of to just say. Um, but I, I love this language of tangible assurance. Um, you know, yeah, let me just be blunt about it. There, there are Christians that speak of a doctrine of assurance. Yes, you know about these people, right? They say, uh, you know, blessed assurance, and, uh, and, and it's I can know that I'm saved. I can know it 100% and not have to doubt it, and, uh, and it's because X, Y, Z happened, or just one thing happened, or, you know, I gave my life to Jesus on the 13th of October in 1954. Um, and fine, right? Fine. Um, <clears throat> but I would say that uh, this is a kind of grasping after assurance when no such assurance is given sacramentally. Um, Anglicans use the word of sa- use this kind of language of assurance with regard to the sacraments because we believe that that's actually the thing that you can bank your that you can that you can take to the bank. I'll put it that way. Um, it's why, uh, you know, if there's any language in Scripture, it's sort of um, the language of down payment uh, that Paul uses, um, a sort of um, assurance of our position as heirs in Christ. Um, well, how is this given? Well, it's given by being joined to Christ. How does Jesus say that, that happens? Right? <laughs> he, he's got words for that, uh, and, they, and they revolve around the sacramental um, understanding, but I want to keep moving. How should you receive the sacraments? I should receive the sacraments by faith in Christ with repentance and thanksgiving. Faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments, and obedience to Christ is necessary for the benefits of the sacraments to bear fruit in my life. I want to lend some clarity to this because I think I can. Um, So first is that the sacraments should be received in faith. And you might say, well, oh, you're already jumping. You're thinking about infant baptism now. Stop. Just just stop. (laughs) Stop for a moment. Um, When we think about baptism in the the normative sense, we should think about adult baptism. We should think about adults coming to faith, receiving baptism. That's normative, right, Uh, in terms of how we think about it. I, I think there are, there are numerous exceptions bound up in infant baptism, and we should say, we should say that, uh, that they're just bound up in it. Uh, normatively, baptism is an adult coming to faith, receiving baptism. Um, so we can say that faith is necessary, um, and with repentance and thanksgiving as well. Um, we should say this about the Eucharist, that we come forward to the Eucharist in, in faith, believing that what um, Christ has said of himself is going on there. Um, with repentance and thanksgiving. Okay, now the catechism says, faith in Christ is necessary to receive the grace of the sacraments. I think this is true, but with a caveat, and the caveat is that faith is not necessary to receive grace in general. Faith is necessary to receive the, the grace of the sacraments. And the question, of course, is, well, how much faith must I have in order to receive the grace of the sacraments? And I would say, it's probably rather minimal, actually. <laughs> I, don't, I don't think that you have to like have all of, you know, you have to have piles and piles of faith lying around in order to properly receive sacraments. I think that um, that bar is actually set quite low on purpose um, because we need tangible assurance. If you needed tangible assurance, then why would you have to have uh, piles and piles of faith to receive the grace of the sacraments? Well, it wouldn't make sense. So I think that um, when we talk about faith being necessary to receive, I think what we're talking about is that, um, you know, I would say at the very least, uh, don't be faithless. Um, at the very least, you know, don't be rebelling, right? Don't be, 
don't be sort of saying, well, I'm an agnostic, but I'll throw this in for good measure. I mean, no. Uh, I think there's got to be a bar set, and the bar should be that you are a professing Christian, that you do believe these things, that, um, that, uh, that you are um, uh, making attempts to live obediently to Christ. All right. And I would actually say this, that Christians have always said that in order for the grace of the sacraments to bear fruit, we have to match um, our, our attending to the mysteries of God with obedience and prayer. Um, and I think that's, I'll just say that that's emphatically the case, right? That um, if, if you're standing around wondering, you know, it's like, hey, uh, I know what we do. We look around at church on Sundays and we say, hey, look, like, me and that little brat, we all receive the Eucharist on Sundays, and I'm being transformed, and he or she is not. <laughs> What's to account for that? <laughs> you say, I think you just say, well, I don't know. <laughs> but, but it might be, it might have something to do with prayer, it might have something to do with obedience, and you could have any number of things to deal with that. Um, and, and I will simply say that uh, in my own life, uh, getting a handle on obedience, overcoming certain sins, has been the key to receiving the sacraments in a way that really does transform my life. However, I will also say that without the sacraments, I probably would have been up, up a creek uh, with regard to actually having any repentance at all. Um, so I think that uh, this is to say, um, uh, especially when we talk about baptism and the Eucharist, you, you, you've got to come with a desire for a new life. I'm going to say that. Like, you've got to come with a desire uh, to be transformed. If you come saying, like, I will not be transformed, <laughs> that's bad, right? And you don't want to be in that position. Uh, and that's very unrepentant and, and very unfaithful. Um, uh, or if you say, I, you know, I know that this is what I am to believe, and I just kind of said the Nicene Creed with my fingers crossed, and I'm going to keep, I'm going to keep doing that because it's my right. Well, then you probably ought not be receiving. Right? <laughs> I think that's probably as, about as clear as I can make it. Um, I think that Many people come to the Eucharist with a desire for um, repentance that they know cannot originate in themselves. And that's a perfectly good thing, and it, and it absolutely should be the case that that happens. And um, I'm, I'm reminded of a, of a, uh, a nun that I know, uh, which we do have nuns, Anglicans have nuns. Uh, we, have, we have brothers too, but uh, this particular nun is, is often put in the position of deciding whether or not her sisters will receive communion, and <laughs> which is something that you give up, actually, when you join a monastery like that. You, you put yourself at the total mercy of the, the, the abbot, in this case. Well, uh, you know, she was saying that sometimes the best decision is to say, you know, sister, I know that you have uh, um, conscience issues about continuing to receive while you're you know, struggling with hating your sister, but, you know, it's clear that you don't want to continue in that, and so I think you need to receive even over and above your judgment. I mean, my judgment is this, that you ought to receive, and I think that's beautiful. I think there's something really good about that, um, so please hear me when I say that, and, and I think really uh, the thing that, you know, if you have any conscience issues about that, this, this is exactly what the prayer book says, Go to a wise and understanding priest and disclose this, uh, and, and you'll receive counsel, and that'll be good, and you'll receive absolution, and that'll be good, and then you can be restored. Like, don't sort of hang on and say, I don't know, what is it? You know, should I be or should I not be? It's like, no, don't do that. Um, there's, there's ample opportunity to, uh, to put that under authority and then and move on. Um, okay. So, uh, let's move on. What sacraments were ordained by Christ? The two sacraments ordained by Christ that are generally necessary to salvation are baptism and the Holy Communion, also called the Lord's Supper or the Holy Eucharist. These are sometimes called sacraments of the gospel. Um, I'm going to delineate between sacraments of the gospel and other sacraments, and I'm going to do so as an Anglo-Catholic. I will just put that very clearly, that I come from a certain tradition within Anglicanism, and I will teach you that tradition, and you are welcome to reject it. Uh, but, but here is what Anglicans say as a whole, completely about sacraments. And it is this, that two sacraments ordained by Christ are ge generally necessary for salvation. Um, and what are they? Baptism and Holy Communion. And what does generally necessary mean, you might ask? And this is where the only thing I can do is tell you a story. And the story is, shortly before I graduated from Texas A&M, and you'll be glad to know I did graduate, um, 
I, received, I, I did a, a degree audit and it came back negative. It was just, you cannot graduate. <laughs> Why? You don't have enough international credits. I said, yes, I do. I took anthropology and then I took, and I'm currently taking martial arts, peoples, and cultures for crying out loud. <laughs> well, come to find out, that class didn't cut the mustard um, according to the, the student handbook. And my advisor had been going around telling everyone, oh, you should take this class, it's very fun. Well, yeah, it was fun, but it didn't count at all towards my degree. So, <laughs> so I, uh, that very morning I got up and I went to the undergraduate programs office and you know, A&M is not like Baylor. Uh, no one really matters at A&M and so you, you have to like stick up for yourself. And so I went to the undergraduate programs office and I, um, I you know, chatted for a bit with the freshman in charge of the front desk and said, uh, I need to speak with the undergraduate, undergraduate programs director. And she said, well, she's currently busy. Um, can I take your name and phone number and we'll, we'll try to make an appointment for you? I said, no, I need you to understand I'm not leaving this room until I speak to the undergraduate programs director. And she looked at me like, almost as if to say, you can't do that. <laughs> and I said, no, I'm just going to sit over here and when, you know, I can talk to her, you just let me know. Well, how long are you going to stay? as long as it takes. <laughs> so there I am sitting there, and, and after two hours, she comes out and says, okay, she'll see you now. And I went back and talked to her, and, and, and she was lovely, and she just said, oh, oh, yes, okay, fine. Uh, you know, basically told me, I'm going to do some things, and you check it in three days and see if it's changed. Well, I checked again in three days, and I had received credit for a class that I never took. And thanks be to God for that, right? Now, this is the point about generally necessary, right? Generally necessary is according to the handbook, right? According to the Bible, according to whatever you might say. Uh, and what can God do? Whatever He wants, okay? So, so sacraments are general provisions for the life of the church and for the life of the Christian, right? And for their salvation, right? Are they absolutely necessary? No, they're generally necessary, okay? Do you see the point? And, and God can do whatever He wants because He's God and He has power, right? He has the power. Um, but why do we say that, the, that these two sacraments are necessary for salvation generally? Why do we say anything? Because it's what Holy Scripture teaches, right? Um, and so I'll just say uh, that, that um, Scripture's emphatically clear about this. Jesus Himself is emphatically clear about this. You look at John 6, you look at Ma uh, Mark 14, 14, you know, he's, He says clearly, He who believes and is baptized will be saved. Okay, well, what do we make of that? We make that baptism is necessary for salvation, generally. Uh, can God do whatever He wants? Yes. So there you have it, generally necessary. Um, and that is why we say they're sacraments of the gospel. It's because they're contained in the gospel as a part of the gospel. Um, and uh, it's, it is uh, necessary for all Christians to receive these sacraments. That's also said as well. Now, this is very important because in the Reformation, part of the idea was, well, we've now made it necessary for you to do other things in addition to these two sacraments. They are also necessary for salvation. So, for instance, if you're dying and the priest doesn't make it to your bed to give you extreme unction, well, you're probably going to hell. Congratulations, right? And they've made a sacrament that is not in Scripture necessary for salvation, necessary for salvation. Does that make sense? In the zeal for the, the sacrament of confession, uh, Roman Catholics and had since the 11th century said, everyone must do this every year. Okay, well, I think that, but... I'm not about to say that everyone has to or their soul is in eternal peril, okay? not going to say that. Why? Because Scripture doesn't give me leave to say that. <laughs> that is not to be said. And we can't even use the language of generally necessary because that language is not in Scripture either. Does that make sense? So the understanding that Anglicans have is you can't pile on, guys. Like, you can't pile on, you can't pile on, you can't pile on. And, and I'm, I'm still committed to that, um, to that to that teaching. Um, so, just hear that. I think that's very important. Um, so, when we talk about other sacraments, it's, you know, we should think about them as not generally necessary for salvation. Does that make sense? We should say not necessary. Now, I also recognize that some people are skittish about calling them sacraments at all, and I say to you, uh, you have to figure that out, and you have to kind of wonder about that and, and look at it. But, um, I would say that uh, Commonly called sacraments is the language that's used in the articles. Um, it means that they are called sacraments. Uh, 
I will say that linguistically, it is no slight to say they're commonly called sacraments because, um, you know, uh, the Feast of the Nativity in, in the prayer book is, 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 has a subtitle, commonly called Christmas. Well, what do we all call it? Christmas. Why? Because it is, right? <laughs> and, and so, I think that, you know, we, we, uh, we modern people have a, have a way of kind of um, prescribing various forms of speech as, you know, not in keeping with things. And I, I just say, well, that's just foolish. I mean, we, we use phrases and words because they are fitting, and we should continue to use words and phrases because they are fitting. Should we make delineations between the sacraments? Absolutely we should. And what should be the delineation? Well, it's exactly what the articles have, which is that there are sacraments that are generally necessary for salvation, and there are sacraments that are not. And we should all say, thanks be to God for that. Well, let me give you an example. Do you have to be ordained to be saved? No. Do you have to be married to be saved? No. Um, so, and that, that covers a lot just right out. Do you have to be confirmed to be saved? No. Um, otherwise, I'd be telling you all, get confirmed or your soul's in peril. It's like, no, I can't say that. Um, Yes, beneficial, absolutely. Should you do it? Yes. Like, we should say all this. Like, yes, you should. Like, <laughs> but do you have to? No. Um, is it generally, is it necessary? No. Um, so, just hear me in that. It's like, that's really key. All right. So, are there other sacraments? Other rites and institutions commonly called sacraments include confirmation, ordination, marriage, absolution, and the anointing of the sick, these are sometimes called sacraments of the church, and I think that's, that's right. So, I, I will say I believe that there are seven sacraments. I will say we can absolutely delineate between those seven sacraments. There are seven sacraments. Other Anglicans will say there are only two sacraments, um, but the language of the catechism is, <laughs> what are the, what, how many sacraments are there? And the answer is only two as generally necessary for salvation, right, which is a giant steaming pile of Anglican fudge, which I delight in and love. Uh, so, so, just hear that, that that's how it works. You, you fudge your way through everything, and, and, that's how, and you make everybody happy, or try to, and, or you disappoint everyone, and that's a good way to do it too. All right, um, but, but note them. I mean, the way to memorize these, if you really want to memorize them, is, uh, is this, and I'll just give it to you. And there, this is the reason that they're laid out this way. Confirmation. Confirmation is what comes after baptism, or should come after baptism. Um, it, is, um, it is kind of, um, uh, some will use the language of completion of baptism. I think that's wrong. Baptism is complete. Um, but, but it is a sort of way of saying, hey, you were baptized as a baby. Now you have to own the faith as your own and make a public profession of faith. And I think that's right. I think that should be done. And so it directly relates to baptism. Um, and throughout Anglican history, it is directly related to the Eucharist because you couldn't receive the Eucharist without being confirmed. But uh, that has also been, in a wonderful twist of historical fate, also been overturned in the sense of saying, well, we want infants to receive communion, and, and uh, we think that's right. And so, but there are some people who don't, so that's fine too. Um, we get to two sacraments which have to do with lifelong vocations, ordination and marriage. Okay, so those two go together. So you say lifelong vocation, ordination and marriage. Um, must everyone be ordained? Thanks be to God, no. Must everyone be married in order to be saved? Thanks be to God, no. So if you're single and you wonder about the state of your soul because you're single, it's like, don't worry about that. Like, you don't have to be married. And, and it's also true that um, there were some in the, in the late medieval church who were saying, you must either be married or go into holy orders or go into the convent or the, or the monastery. And Anglicans rejected that too by saying this. No, uh, entirely optional, okay? Um, now, then there are two at the very end, uh, sacraments which are associated with healing, and actually in the prayer book, both of these are contained under the subheading, sacraments of healing, or rites of healing. Um, and one is absolution, and the other is uh, unction, or the anointing of the sick. And I think the reason that we should speak of those together is that they do deal with healing. Um, and, and broadly, although not um, absolutely, uh, you know, spiritual sickness is sin, and physical sickness is sickness, the kind you go to a doctor for. But all have a spiritual component, all have a sacramental component, because you're dealing with the body. Um, spiritual sin can lead to sickness in the body, okay? Can. Uh, at the same time, um, uh, bodily illness can lead to spiritual problems as well. 
um, as anyone with depression can, can attest. Um, so there you go. Okay, now we'll go down to the last one. How do these differ from the sacraments of the gospel? They were not ordained by Christ as necessary to salvation, but arose from the practices of the apostles in the early church, or were blessed by God in Scripture. God clearly uses them as means of grace. Okay, so there you have it. And I think the basic way to put it is that um, they are certainly spoken of in Scripture. Yes? I mean, Jesus commands His apostles, heal the sick, you know. Um, the power to absolve sin is given in John 20. What do you do with that, right? Those are the first things He says when He rises from the dead, He appears to the apostles like, whoever sins you forgive, they're forgiven. Um, whoever sins you retain, they're retained. Um, I think it's very clear that marriage is, in a, in a sense, the primordial sacrament, right? It's, it's, hey, look, you know, before the fall, there was marriage. It's an institution of grace, and et cetera. And I think that's true of, of ordination as well. I mean, I think, uh, you know, it's clear that in Scripture, Adam and the firstborn son are always priests. So we can think about, you know, ordination in that sense. I'm not saying that, you know, that's where it comes from, but but uh, that, that these things are certainly contained in Scripture. It's certainly clear that there are offices in Scripture which are ordained in that sense by the laying on of hands. Um, and so all of that is, is very biblical. Um, but having said all that, not generally necessary for salvation. And thanks be to God for that. Um, okay, thank you. We'll begin next week with the discussion of baptism, which I promise will be very racy indeed, and you'll have all these questions, and we will circle the wagons and try to figure it out. Okay, it's very fun. All right.